Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio 94.1 FM. Today we'll begin with an interview with Representative Marina Moran, who represents Frogtown and parts of Rondo in the Minnesota State Legislature. Then we'll hear from members of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofit Unionization Campaign, Ileana Mejia and Amber Davis. Here we go. Today we'll start with an interview with Representative Moran. Yeah, so uh, for uh, the audience, for my community, my district, my name is Rena Moran. I'm the state representative of, of the Frogtown community, along with the historical Rondo community with uh, Midway, a little part of the north end and a part of Cathedral Hill. I am currently in my sixth term in the legislature. Uh, I live right here in the in the Rondo community. Uh, let's see, I uh, am currently the chair of Ways and Means Committee, but I also sit on the tax committee, along with capital investment in the rules committee. Um, the, those are um, all committees that historically, I, I think communities of color uh, are, are not connected with, especially, you know, chair of the Ways Committee, which is one of the, well, folks tell me anyway, it's one of the most powerful seats in the legislature um, because um, everything that has money attached to it will come to and has to go through my committee before it reaches the House floor. Um, and that is important. Uh, and it's important because of the type of uh, agenda that we are currently moving through the legislative body. Absolutely. So, um, we were saying this in the pre-interview that this has been an interesting year for racial justice at the legislature. It is the center of so many conversations and so differently than in the past. Can you talk about where we are when it comes to racial justice and policymaking so far this year? Yeah. So this summer, the uh, Democratic House of Representatives declared racism a public health crisis. And out of that declaration, uh, the Select Committee of Racial Justice was formed. And, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, uh, health care, um, uh, you know, racism being a, a health care issue, it's not just looking at, you know, health care. It is looking at education. It's looking at jobs, like housing, home ownership. All of, of those issues are embedded in racism. And so uh, that committee, which I was the co-chair of, along with Representative uh, Ruth Richardson, was a committee that really looked at policies that create practices that we see play back out in our communities and across the state entities was what we wanted to address. And we didn't really want to spend a lot of time talking about uh, well, of course, you have to, you know, talk about statistics, you know, what it looks like for our BIPOC community, the impact of these uh, inequities and the disparities that is inundating the state of Minnesota. We have some of the worst disparities in the country, but it was a defining moment for myself and my co-chair to really talk about the historical systemic racism that has been in embedded in policies and practice, you know, in Minnesota and in our country. But it was really important to us that we focus on Minnesota that is in, in, is, uh, in the Midwest because sometimes we seem to believe and had thought that racism wasn't really intentional systemic racism, wasn't embedded in our policies and practices here in the North, here in the Midwest. And sure enough, that's um, what we found through our research and through our presenters. Uh, you know, there's something called the Jim Crow of the North, which is like right here in Minnesota. And so, you know, we opened up session with myself as chair of the Ways and Means bringing that report because we did not want this report to be something that we had worked really hard invested a lot of time and energy on to sit on the shelf, never to be seen and heard of again. 
And so part of what happened with myself and our People of Color Indigenous Caucus, with our United Black Legislative Caucus and our other, you know, Indigenous and Asian Caucus, we made a conscious decision that we were going to embed that report and the A-plus recommendations that came out of that report into the committee process. And so that has happened. We, um, our legislators of color, there's currently, I hope I get this number right, because we are growing. We are growing in numbers in in the Minnesota legislature. Um, I think there's like 17 of us in the House um, and five or six in the Senate for a total of like 23, 24 legislators of color in the Minnesota House, the most in the history of Minnesota politics. And what that does is that, you know, it allows us to bring our perspective into that body. You know, we're mothers, we're fathers, we're aunts, you know, some of them like myself, our grandparents, you know, we are embedded in the history of our respective communities. And we bring to the table that those who've been impacted by systems should be the one who should be a part of those who are at the table making decisions about how we can improve the outcomes in our community. And so we are using um, this platform about racial justice, racial equity uh, throughout the legislative body that has been supported not only by our policy caucus of bringing this narrative to the legislature, but also the support of our speaker and our majority leader. And we're also are keenly seeing that, seeing this language been implemented and utilized within the governor's office too. So I'm really, you know, you open up and say, how you feel today? I feel good because we are creating a narrative that we are seeing been repeated back to us by commissioners and lobbyists and others who come before the body to make, you know, racial equity, to make equity. Uh, systemic, looking at systemic racism, institutional racism, uh, a priority. And and so, um, yeah, it's, it's been, as you stated, it is at the forefront of how we are going to be, uh, of how we're governing in the Minnesota House of Representatives. Um, thank you for that. So there is, and I will say, I think it's it's been really interesting seeing the ways in which racial justice has been integrated, I, I, it, it makes me think that in all the years prior to, um, prior to this year, how much, how much, how much easier it would have been for racial justice to have been the frame. Like it, it wasn't. I, I don't think it was. Uh, I don't. I mean, the mindset just mindset just needed to shift, and I think that that was maybe one of the big barriers. It wasn't the data. It was just the mindset that needed mm. to get into place. And, I mean, obviously the Posse Caucus has been leading on that, but it just, you know, makes me wish that this conversation was something we were having 10 years ago. Absolutely. I agree with you. And, and let me just say uh, what you see moving, yes, it is the mindset, but it is also the moment that we're in with the murder of George Floyd with the pandemic that has just elevated the inequities that we see within all of our systems. When we was able to see um, George Floyd um, laying like ground with an officer's knee on his neck and his, him taking his last breath, was transformational for people to see and witness that. So something that us in, in the black community always know has happened. You know, but for, for, for this moment, people were able to witness that there was a, a black man that is often is who was laying there helpless while other police officer held his legs down while one, you know, choked him to death. Um, and even when he felt unconscious, that knee stayed on his neck was a, 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 an awakening for our, you know, not only our diverse communities, but for our, our white allies, for our white liberals, for others to stand up and say, this is not okay. This moment that what we just witnessed is, is not okay. And that, you know, folks stood together, not only in here in Minnesota, but as you saw, right, across the country, across the world, 
And so this is our moment. This is our civil rights moment for us, for us as legislators, right, who can no longer sit around and say, well, you know, that happened then, or for others to say, that happened then. You know, we're better than this now. And, and, you know, the fact is we're not. Yes, we're not what we were, you know, back in 1968 when uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was, and others was protesting, marching those from the black community say, see us as equal. You know, we're moving, realize that equal is not where we are. We need to be more equitable and fair about the decision that we're making. And that is incumbent upon us from the community to the state house, city council, to wherever you may be in space and time. This is that moment that we're going to not only make today better, but we're going to make tomorrow better for not only for our kids, but for our grandkids and for our great-grandkids. This is our moment. And as legislators, we're not going to continue to work in a place where we are creating laws and policies that create the practice that plays out there or inequitable back out in our communities. And so we have a role to play as legislators to make sure that we are not, and that we're also putting our money where our mouth is, as we may say. Uh, that our budget is a moral document of our values. And it is my my work and my job is to share of the ways and means to make sure that as we look at our uh, budget and we look at our investment and we look at our policies, that that is a reflection of whom we say we are. And so um, um, it's, it's a moment. It's a moment in time that uh, is past due, so needed. I wish it was there 10 years ago when I first came to the legislature, when there was many times that I was the only black legislator in the body of 134. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's hard work, you know, when often I see the world a different way. I see solutions in different ways. I see additional solutions that, you know, I am trying to convince my colleagues that, you know, this is how we need to invest. What we've been doing has not been working for my community, for our community in BIPOC communities. And so having more elected officials who can also bring additional voices and solutions and pushback into that body, um, it's like a breath of fresh air for me as a state legislator. You know, I'm excited about this opportunity and this possibility, but we know as legislators that we cannot do this work alone. We need the support of the community. We need the voices of the advocates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk more deeply about some of the policies that we should be paying attention to as we head into um, the last, I don't know, two months of session? Yeah. So I'm going to go, you know, and I will recommend that, uh, folks uh, spend time just trying to get a hold of the uh, the House Select Committee Racial Justice Report. If you contact my office under uh, rep.rena.moran uh, at house.mn, um, I will definitely be able to uh, send out um, a link or a copy of the report. But so in the in the report from the Select Committee on um, on Racial Justice, we made three points. Uh, is that uh, systemic racism exists, that systemic racism is harmful, and that systemic racism must be addressed. And from that, we put forth the 80-plus recommendations. And we we just had to stop at some point, right, because um, believe me, there could be plenty more recommendations. But like under economic development, we are looking that we are going to be asking our state to enforce Chapter 16C, uh, which is to uh, require that 15% of all public contracting go to BIPOC businesses, and that we are meeting that 32% workforce goal on all public contracting. We believe that we have a, a, a bidding process that needs to be streamlined. It is so full of, uh, you know, pages of, of, of processes that, you know, that is clear barriers to small and minority-owned businesses. So we want, so look for that under just economic development. We want to establish a $25 million loan guarantee program 
uh, backed by existing assets to support bank lending to buy parts or businesses or give that those dollars to uh, our nonprofit entity that can also do that loaning process for our buy parts. Um, a small business uh, entrepreneur because you know traditionally banks are not giving are give, giving the loans to our back our bipart um, business folks so um, that is some of the pieces along that look for what we know historically that women have not been paid at the same rate as men we know women and communities of color are not paid at the same rate as white men so we also have um, uh, a, uh, a bill that's moving through the body that uh, bans that uh, that salary history bans, which is that you know when you go for an interview, you may have your employer uh, or whoever interviewing you ask you, well, what did you make at your last job? And because we always start at a disadvantage, whatever quote we give is going to keep us at a disadvantage. So we want to ban that question from being asked. If employers are uh, putting uh, an ad in the, uh, wherever for a job opportunity, it needs to just clearly say this job is going to offer, it's going to start at 65000 and you show up, you interview, and that you're getting that job based on your experience, your knowledge, and your expertise that you're bringing to that place not what you made at your last job. I'm excited about that because I know that that would be transformational for really um, getting our BIPOC community at an even playing field. Um, we got the Women of Color Opportunity Act that looks at housing, I look at the workforce, and look at financial literacy, it supports our young girls in the classroom. So that's moving through the body. We got a Teach of Color bill that's also moving in, in in the body. We believe that we need to have more teachers of color in the classroom. Students need to see a reflection of them, uh, of themselves in, in teachers. So we have that moving through um, uh, the body right now. Um, and that's under education. We want to create a process for um, you know, to invest in early childhood education, create a pathway that we are um, uh, for early childhood education that we get, make sure that we're getting more of our children who come from what people quote disadvantaged communities, low-income communities, that we're getting them into a pre-K program so that they are entering kindergarten ready and prepared. Um, that is important to us. Oh, gosh, you know, full-service community. This is COVID. We're looking at distant learning. We're trying to create a process for summer programming, after-school programming, money that will allow schools to go on field trips, you know, because learning do not just happen in the classroom. Learning happens so many different ways. So that is huge for us. That bill is coming to the House floor this uh, next week. Uh, we want to make have dollars available for that. Um Let's see here. Um, and I and I'm, I'm definitely missing some of all of the good stuff that we have moving under public safety. We think we're going to we want to uh, they're doing some cash bail reform, some driver's license fees, um, fines and fees reform uh, for individuals, some asset forfeiture reform, decriminalization of marijuana, um, technical violation reform. All of that under public safety. Health and Human Service, we have the, the, the Dignity of Pregnancy and Childbirth Act, which really focused on the um, get lots of research around the number of especially black women who are dying um, at uh, giving birth in the 21st century. Why is that still happening? You know, uh, our kids, our black kids and kids of color, distance kids are more likely, our babies are more likely to die within the first year of birth. And so... We want some more research to be done around that, not just who, how many are dying, but also look at morbidity for those who almost died, right? Because we want to prevent that from happening. Um, we're looking at a state-paid family medical leave program. Uh, let's see. And doulas. We want to invest in more in doulas to be able to go to uh, to reimburse doulas for the work that they do in our BIPOC community where they're showing up at, um, you know, doctor's appointments with pregnant women. You know, we want to get more men um, in the role of doulas so that more men are in the 
the birthing process, you know, see themselves and in the beginning of pregnancy to, you know, to the, the child is, you know, 18 older and on. And so we want to invest more in, in doulas. Uh, to be uh, present again with pregnant and postpartum women at all medical vi- uh, visits and procedures. We want to extend Medicaid coverage for pregnant women from 12 months to postpartum. And we know that this is a really important for communities of color and, and, and folks from the low-income community to create better uh, um, uh, outcomes for women and babies and children. Uh, we want to retroactively uh, work on the statute of limitation for family members who have lost of loved ones to um, from a death by a police officer. That that statute of limitation where they can go back and sue in place, which is um, which has been we heard uh, that loud and clear from many family members who have lost of a, a loved ones at the hands of police officers. So that is just a few. We have so much more that is going. We are keenly aware of that the impact that COVID-19 has had on our community, you know, and I, 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 I'd be remiss if I just didn't say to our BIPOC communities, I just went uh, two days ago to have my first shot, my first vaccination shot. You know, I, I'm doing good. I've been doing really, really good. That, um, you know, um, our communities are been impacted by COVID-19 in in really large numbers. So, and, and I know it's hard to say, is this something? Do I want to trust this 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 vaccination? Do I want to trust doctors? You know, because they have experimented, especially in the black community, experimented on our bodies. So I get that. I understand the you know the uh, the the distrust. Of government, the distrust of the medical profession, um, but there have been like I believe over 15 million people who have taken this vaccination, and everyone body reacts different to this vaccination. So I would say for you young folks who feel I'm, I'm healthy and I'm invisible, invisible you know, um, think about it. Um, for uh, our population, um, for now, you know. The results, the CDC and the medical profession said it's a life-saving entity. Yes, that they're still working on that, but any any aspirin that we've ever taken, any ibuprofen, any Tylenol, any anything that you've taken for diabetes had to go through this process, did go through this process. This COVID-19 is, 19, 19 is new to us. And yes, with the you know the researchers and the medical professionals are still sorting it out, but I would like to suggest that um, we take the vaccination. If you're 45 and up, 30, any pre-existing conditions, take it. It is for now a life-saving entity that will slow this virus down, and we need to slow it down so that we can get back to normal. Thank you, and I'm glad that you brought up the vaccine. Now we have just a few minutes left, so I want to um, see if we can get these two questions in. The racial justice efforts in the House are powerful, and I've been very clear with our audience and with the people who read my work that I frame all my work through racial justice, and I advocate for that. What does it mean? I mean, we have the Senate, and I think we need to talk about what's really realistic given mm-hmm. the fact that we have a split legislature. Yes, yeah, that's right. And we are the only split legislature in the country, which means the House is Democrat and the Senate is Republican. And for any bill to move through the body, for any uh, law to be changed, any investment needs to be made, we have to be in negotiation with the Senate for that to happen. And so you're right. Um, I'm not seeing an abundance of that racial justice language moving through the body. But let me tell you, I am hearing it, though. Uh, Not as like we're hearing it in the House and from the governor, but they absolutely know that we have a racial equity agenda. But it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to, um, to negotiate with uh, Republicans 
not only through a racial justice uh, 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 lens, but also through a liberal lens, you know. Um, but it's possible. It is possible. And it's possible because across the state of Minnesota, what I would like to see happen is that I, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from the public about the things that you care about, what we need to be investing in, how we need to be support, be supporting working families, our, our schools, our students, our parents, you know, what it looks for housing and, 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 and homelessness. Um, we need to hear from you. But you're right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be an easy feat. Um, all the work that I've ever done at the legislature, legislature has been through a race equity lens. I can't help it. That's how I see the world. And that's how I talk about solutions is through a racial equity lens. And I'm going to be in those negotiation rooms uh, doing my best to fight for a more just uh, uh, budget that is a reflection of our communities, in all communities, you know, across the state of Minnesota. That's important to me. Absolutely. Um, so in the last minute that we have you, how can people, you mentioned reading the report. Is there any other way that people can engage with what's happening at session this year? Yeah, there is like, and I know, you know, to, to say this is hard for me because I recognize we're in COVID-19, people have lost their jobs, they're trying to figure out how they're going, you know, thank goodness some of our kids are back in school because distance learning has been very, very hard for, for parents and for children and for households. And so um, I, I know that. I recognize that I'm a grandmother. I, I had to do my work and also try to do distance learning with my grandson. Why my daughter went back, why he went back to work, you know, part time. He was here with me, so I understand. But what I what I I need us to do, you know, is to find your state legislator. Just send them an email. It's a simple email. Take like, you know, five minutes, fifteen minutes, a half an hour to search and find out who your legislator, who represent you in the Minnesota House of Representatives. Send them an email and simply say to them. We need to be investing in whatever you care about, whether it's housing, shelters, you know, that's more in, you know, uh, supporting our students, our teachers, whatever that may be. Spend some time. That makes a difference. If I get, like, 10 emails on a sick area, I pay attention to it. That tells me this is an urgency. People back out in the community are, this is what they care about. And so I need you to show up and show us District 65A and districts across the state. Show us as legislators what it is that you care about by sending a simple email and say it, invest in that. And then call your legislator. Call your legislator. They, they represent you. They will respond to you. Thanks to Representative Moran for joining us on air. Up next, we have Ileana Mejia and Amber Davis, who are members of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofit Unionization Campaign. Uh, why don't we start with introductions? So names, pronouns, and just who you're representing, if any. Yeah, um, thank you. My name is Ileana Mejia, and I use she, her pronouns, and I'm here today because I'm representing one of uh, two people representing uh, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits Union. That's right. Hey, I'm, I'm Amber Davis. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm Ileana's colleague at the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. And we, with other workers there, are a part of a bargaining unit uh, working with the Minnesota Newspaper and Communications Guild uh, to unionize at MCN. We are so excited about it. Wonderful. Well, so glad to have both of you on air today. Uh, why don't we start at the beginning? Where did the idea for this union come from? Mm. Eliana, can I take it? Yes, yes, please, okay. Amber. <laughs> um, that's a yes. Where did I begin? Um, I've been at CN for about three years, and uh, you know, three years ago when I started, uh, we noticed, I'd say we as workers noticed there's lots of turnover at MCN, super high turnover, and it kind of starts to you know, it makes you ask questions. Well, why is there high turnover? What is happening? Why are some folks leaving? 
Uh, and then um, MCN decided it was going to launch a really big, amazing project, um, which is really exciting. It's called Benefits MN. It's an association healthcare plan because we're an association for nonprofits in the state of Minnesota. And so the big dream was our executive director who's been, our founder, executive director who's been around over 30 years. He has always heard from small nonprofits that um, for a teeny, teeny, tiny nonprofit, it's just so hard to afford affordable health insurance for your employees. So the idea is uh, members of MCN are able to opt into uh, health insurance rates that we can get by working with right now, Medica. Um, so it's kind of cool. We each, uh, the idea is that the program will create really competitive rates for those tiny little nonprofits so we can get as many workers covered and cared for uh, really importantly. Um, the hard thing was that that project went very quickly without much input from the workers at MCN. Uh, and then it was also going to change our healthcare coverage as well. So in the process, some of our workers lost their healthcare providers. Um, some, I like spoke up about it and said, hey, this is like, I lost like three providers. This is really intense. And I started talking to other colleagues. They had also lost providers. Uh, and around that time, there was kind of a moment when a few colleagues started saying, this feels like it was rushed without our input. It feels like the decision-making at MCN from the workers who are doing the work is not, there's, there's not an accountability from the management to the workers. There's not an exchange of ideas. It's, it's not working. Um, so the, some of the workers were like, what if we unionize? Can we talk about unionization? So a while ago, a year and a half ago or so, uh, we started meeting up uh, as a small group of workers outside of MCN and started dreaming about what that whole process might look like. And then fast forward to today. Can you talk a little bit more deeply about what the unionizing process has looked like up until now? Yeah, so um, back before Eliana started, or maybe it was while you were around. Um, I think you were around back then, roughly. Um, you started after me. So it's not too long, but uh, workers started, uh, the, our general process was uh, we started meeting up outside of work, talking about our issues, talking to each other. What was, what was a major concern for one person? What was a major concern for the others? Seeing where they overlapped and seeing where we can support each other too. Like maybe an issue that Ileana has doesn't really affect me as much, but I still want to stand in solidarity with her. So how do I like lift up her voice or her experience or how can I stand with her for issues? So we, it, it happens like very organically with conversations. And then eventually uh, we were like, okay, we need to start seeing, there's like a whole bunch of unions out there. <laughs> so like, who do we talk to? We started researching, okay, there's like a nonprofit professionals union and they are umbrellaed under OPEIU. Okay, there's our members, some, we have some member organizations that are unionized through the Minnesota Newspaper and Communications Guild. Okay, let's look into them. So we started looking at these um, uh, unions, and then we reached out and we said, hey, can we talk to someone from your organization about what it's like working with you and the unionization process? Um, we did research. We started kind of interviewing and like shopping around, even though, you know, we just wanted to see what organization fit us right, our message, and maybe would fit with MCN really well. Mm -hmm. uh, we decided on the Newspaper and Communications Guild specifically because our members had already been organizing with them. So it felt as a membership organization that felt really true to us to follow in the footsteps of our members. And also because they're a newspaper, you know, that they are not, they can't take on partisan issues and we are nonpartisan. So it's like, oh, perfect. We're a 501c3. Um, we don't endorse specific uh, candidates, et cetera. And so politic, well, not politically, just with our, with the work we do, it aligned. Um, mm -hmm. So we started working with an organizer there and then started having conversations with other workers, including Eliana. <laughs> oh, I love that segue. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, so when I started the process, like when I became part of this uh, unionized effort, um, I remember being approached and I was like, it was like a very serious conversation. And I remember being like, is everything okay? Like, what is wrong? And the person who asked me if I want to be part of the union was like, you know, finally got to it and was like, do you want to be part of a union with us? And I was like, absolutely. Like, yes. What are we unionizing for? Because for me, I didn't have any specific concerns at that point that I could 
articulate that this is why I want to join it. I wanted one, well, you know, one of my main reasons to join this union was to stand in solidarity with my colleagues. Um, and then when we started doing, um, we started having conversations with other co uh, colleagues that were not in the union yet. And it was, it was pretty intense to like start building these relationships because it, while it seems natural because they are my colleagues, it felt weird to me. I, I struggled a little bit with that ask at the end, understanding that we are all in relationships with each other and having conversations about how we could see MCN as a better workplace. Um, so we, un we understood that, right? But it's still like, what are your concerns? Can we build power together? Can we address this with a union? And so um, because I like usually bottom, well, <laughs> I usually like getting to the point in my conversations, I, was, I just wanted to be like, do you wanna unionize with us? But that's not how it goes. You really have to build relationships. And that is one of the hardest, um, that was, I think that was the hardest uh, task for me in unionizing for sure. Um, and it was fun because you're learning a lot about your coworkers. You're learning a lot about their, um, what they like, what they don't like, what they want to change, what their values are. And so, um, you know, the last, I would say, I don't know, eight months, we'd say, I don't know if that's even accurate, but I'd say about maybe eight months or so, um, of building relationships with other coworkers and then, um, you know, making an impact or making um, a mission statement to make sure that we have all of our values and all of our voices that are being heard into this mission statement. This is what drives us. And then, um, you know, when you are done building relationships and you're, you know, building your mission statement and even getting a logo, then you have to march on the boss. And I have to say that marching on the boss, looking back, I much rather would have marched on the boss than built, than then all of that time, that emotional time of building those relationships because you think you're gonna go into it and these relationships are going to take off and you're going to just ask someone and they're gonna be like, okay, but you really, it's, you can't rush that process. And I think for me, that's really hard. Um, but yeah, so that that's how it looked. A lot of time outside of work, making sure that we were listening to our coworkers. Um, is really how it was. Thank you for that. Why unionize? I mean, that's not an easy decision for anybody to make. Uh, it's a good question. It's such a question. It's like so, it's kind of, the, there's this weird harmful idea out there that nonprofit workers shouldn't be uh, taken care of. They shouldn't be paid well. They should just do it from the good of their hearts because the mission is from the good of our hearts and we're taking care of inequities in the world and you should only do it from the good of your heart. But like, there's this, I feel like we need to flip that idea on its head a little bit, uh, because if the, if we're not even giving the workers those basic values of human rights, safety, financial security, health care, retirement, and safety in your old age, like how are you supposed to live and thrive and have experience joy um, and live out this mission? It, it seems like like the values of the nonprofit are like missing something if, if mm. we're not giving the workers first. It's so easy to start at home. So why unionize? Oh, we have to take care of the workers because the workers are doing the work and caring for the communities and the communities also care for us, right? I feel like there's a, an energy exchange too that, that might get hurt when we're uh, taking care of workers. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Ileana? Yeah, um, my first answer is why not? <laughs> Unions have... <laughs> you know, thinking about unions and what they've brought us, you know, they have brought us, you know, wages is one part of it, right? Increased wages or living wages um, and benefits, right? But they also have brought safety and protections to workers. And I think that's something to be said, right? And, and so we want to make sure, like Amber said, that we're making, that we're taking care of our, all of our employees. Um, and I think that unions are a really great place to do it. I, you know, previously I have been in a union and um, I was, it was during when I was in grad school. And the only reason why I stayed working at that job was because of the union, because of the protection, because of the benefits. And 
I think I think it's very interesting to think about well what do unions offer well they offered you know a grad student you know almost free health care um you know and I think that was really huge for me at the time because I, I relied on that health care and so unions helped at least one person in my book and so that's good enough for me to say okay let's talk about it unions can protect they can help um and I think within the workplace you know you don't nothing has to be bad to want to unionize and I think the big you know the big um myth is that you know wow your workplace was so horrible that you needed a union no we want we want to have the benefits that MCN offers and we want more. We want to make sure that they're protected. Um, so unionizing is just one way to um, have solidarity, build power, safety nets in place, um, and also wanting to recognize that while these benefits and wages um, exist right now, what happens if they don't exist in five years? You know, what happens if new leadership comes in and says, you know what, I actually don't like the fact that you have summer Fridays and we're gonna get rid of them. And to us, it's like, no, we've, we love summer Fridays. Um, and, and so we just wanted to protect what's what's here and, and what we can add on to uh, MCN's coworkers or workers, uh, what they could have. No. Totally. I feel like there's like the issue of burnout too, right? We're uh, yeah, there's this weird idea under like capitalism that productivity is key and the workers just need to like burn themselves out until the point where they like leave a nonprofit. And then I feel like nonprofits sometimes trade all these incredible nonprofit workers. So what about if we could retain this committed and talented workforce instead of burning them out all the time? I feel like there's also like um, uh, something to that, like benefit of that. Yeah, I have to say that um, I can, and I kind of touched on this last time, but um, when I left that unionized uh, workplace, I had benefits for up until three months after I quit, because that is the way that the union was structured. I, of course, scheduled all of my doctor appointments and my dentist appointments and other medical appointments up until the day that I was done, you know, up until the last week not even realizing that they were still offering benefits for me because that is what the union contract said. Um, and so I think just to think about the quality of life uh, that happens under a union is, is really beautiful and powerful, um, especially to the nonprofit sector that, you know, the first thing I think about nonprofits before I worked at MCN was underpaid and overwhelmed like that's you know and then you wonder why do nonprofits unionize well everyone thinks of them as underpaid and overwhelmed I mean hello <laughs> why wouldn't we so one of our colleagues Ileana asked me uh recently they're like okay so there, yeah that sounds really cool there's all these like benefits of unionizing I've never thought of it that way and and they're like is there a reason why someone would argue against unionizing and I like I couldn't, I like could, I couldn't even dream, like I can't even imagine what that answer is. Um, and I don't think it's because like I'm a worker who's unionizing right now. I think I I think I don't know about you, but like I cannot, I can't think of any reason why not to. Like I don't think there's anything negative about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree, Amber. If someone were to ask me that, I'd be like, not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um where is the unionizing campaign right now? I've heard that there's an election coming up. Yes, yes. So um, we, so when you unionize, you have to um, take this action. It's really cool. It's called, you have to march on the boss. Um, and after you march on the boss, that is you saying, hey, we have formed a union. We would just like you to now, uh, you, we would like you to now voluntarily recognize us. And then, um, you know, the executive director who, um, I mean, I'm not throwing percentages out there, but I would say 99% of the time, the executive director is the sole person that can sign this uh, statement saying, yes, I voluntarily recognize you. Now let's move into negotiations within, uh, with good faith. Um, and that, that's usually the process, but of course there are different uh, ways to get to the end of 
uh, ratifying a contract before you even get to negotiations. And we have experienced just that. <laughs> so we marched on our boss um, almost two weeks ago and we you know, asked for voluntary, vo voluntary recognition. Um, we you know, were told, give us a little bit. We need to you know, get some things together. And we were like, oh my, what does that mean? Well, for us, in our case, it meant hiring an anti-union lawyer to get feedback on if the executive director should recognize us. And so it kind of moved from this like voluntarily recognition to formal recognition because, you know, in a staff meeting, he said, well, you're a union. We said, we are a union. Can you sign this paper? And he said, well, I'm not so sure. And so we asked for formal recognition again, we did not get it. So then you go public. Uh, we went public, um, you know, a few days later, we had a really great campaign going of a petition and, you know, letter support and social media pressure. Um, and, you know, that was really great. And that happened for about a week. And we recently found out a few days ago that they will be um, not formally recognizing us by signing that statement, but they will instead be uh, forcing us into another election. And when we say another election, it means that whenever we, um, we are a union right now, we might not be recognized, but we are a union uh, because six out of the nine of us have, uh, have signed uh, support or, you know, that we want to be part of this union. And so that's over the majority, which means that we are a union. We took a vote and the majority of workers want this. And so now that they are forcing another election on us that will happen in about two weeks, they, I guess, just maybe want, <laughs> Amber, help me out. Maybe they want like a, like a final vote in case anyone has changed their mind. I'm not really sure, but, um, but that is where we stand right now. So we uh, will not be at this point formally recognized by our executive director. Instead, we'll be forced into another election. Amber, do you have anything else yeah. to add? No, I think you're hitting the like the nail on the head. Um, it's uh, so a common like delaying tactic or union busting tactic that employers and bosses can use is to add, to say, hey, you know what? We don't we don't believe you have majority support. Uh, we would like to see that in an election. It just slows things down, delays the process, and also it kind of helps out their lawyer because their lawyer gets paid more legal fees. Uh, they spend more time, you know, working on union busting than actually working with workers. So. It's a, it's a gesture that um, MCN has given us very flowery language and, and told us, well, it's about democracy, um, but it, it really, it isn't <laughs> that we can, we can clearly see that um, because we told them, oh yeah, well, we, here's all the eligible people and we voted. Yeah, yeah we're, we're a majority. Um, so it's, it was, it's like surprising and it's always, it's always like disheartening to see your leadership uh, try and you know uh, turn something really beautiful that actually is like um, just union busting. <laughs> it's yeah, like, oh, like you're, we're not <laughs> you're not tricking us. Uh, we, I, it, yeah, it's been it's been a really surprising process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that election will be held April 9th, I want to say. Yep. Um, and so then after April 9th, we will have more updates. And, um, you know, after that day, uh, assuming that we have enough votes, uh, we will then move into contract negotiations, um, which could last anywhere from like probably one month to one year. Um, at the rate we're going, we're assuming it's going to be on the ladder, but <laughs> we don't know. Uh, there's a lot of surprises along the way, I'm sure there will be maybe. <laughs> Yeah. In the meantime, before the election, MCN can, if they want to, uh, decide that they want to tell us who they think should be in our bargaining unit. So right now we've identified everyone who doesn't have a supervisee or a manager title. We are like, have figured out everyone on staff. We've named them all and figured out our votes. But in the meantime, if MCN wants to do some anti-union tactics, they could decide, well, we don't think Ileana should be allowed to vote. Here. Mm -hmm. And they might make up a reason. Um, they might try and add folks to our to our bargaining unit who they think might be anti-union. Um, and we've heard that they've definitely internally started asking questions about who they would like to add in or remove. Uh, 
we're, we're curious to find out more and we're kind of waiting on them to hear what they'd like to, to say. They have an opportunity before our election at a hearing where we'd have to talk about those things. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's disappointing. Mm -hmm. It is. Thank you for that. So how can people learn more? How can people support? Yes. Well, this is one of my favorite questions. You can follow us on social media. We have an Instagram page and we have a Twitter page. Um, both are at MCN Union. So definitely follow us there. Give us a like, um, you know, share our posts, send them to your friends, uh, all of that fun engagement uh, analytic stuff that goes on on social media. We want uh, to spread the word. And so that's definitely one way you can support. Uh, Amber, do you have another way people can support us? Yeah, I mean, I'd add if you are a nonprofit worker, like don't, a lot of nonprofit workers are hiding in the shadows right now. They're too scared to like our posts. They're too scared to retweet. They're too scared to share. Mm -mm. It's not the time to be like afraid and hide. We need solidarity. Now is the time to come out. Now is the time to speak. If you want to email or call John Pratt directly, you should. If you want to talk to your colleagues at your organization and say, hey, I think we as a whole organization should support them because this is going to be better for the nonprofit sector. Get your colleagues together right now. Get your phones out. Call John. We need folks to give the message to MCN's leadership and our board that what they're doing right now is actually really gross. Union busting is disgusting. <laughs> um, and uh, we, they need to hear from their members and the nonprofit community that actually we're, they're really supportive of us. Um, so if you're afraid, don't be afraid, come out because we'll have solidarity with you. We have each other's backs. Um, it's a really exciting time. So use your voice and like use it on social media, but then I'll make a phone call or an email directly, his number and his emails right on our website. <laughs> Um, also, so is ours. So if you want to reach out, reach out to us. We want to hear your support. Mm -hmm. And I'd also say that's where the people can learn a lot as well, because um, whoever is running our social media page on Instagram is just doing a fantastic job of reposting really fantastic uh, posts about unionizing and what it is and what it's not. Um, you know, you can also go to the National Labor Relations Board as well it's kind of dense. So I can understand why you'd want to go to our social media page, specifically Instagram to learn more. Yeah. So our Instagram has a set highlight story. Um, for example, if you want to start unionizing in your own workplace, or if you're hearing your workers, like your colleagues say something like, oh, that MCN, I don't know about those, those workers. What are they doing trying to unionize? We have some easy like moments, like little sentences that you can just debunk some myths. Like, ah, you know, you're going to ruin a nonprofit's budget if you unionize. Well, actually, here's a response that you can use to respond to that. Oh, my relationship is so good with my supervisor. I would never unionize. Well, let's like unpack that a little bit. Uh, so we have some really great um, just uh, learning opportunities too on our socials. And then like super fun memes. If you're a meme person and just want to get a little giggle, like head over to our Twitter for some fun stuff. Thanks to all for joining us on air. Just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at CMiriam, and you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show wherever you find your podcasts. Um, you can find our website, journalismofcolor.com, and that's where you can also find a transcript of this episode. You can reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with any tips, recommendations, or questions. For now, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and mask up.